0: Last week we looked at Jesus stepping into his calling, his public ministry, and there were these foundational pieces that had to come first. And we talked about this template for ministry that we see uh, in Jesus's life. We said first his identity is confirmed. That's a relational uh, reality. This is my son. I love him. With him I'm well pleased. Has nothing to do with Jesus functionally or his role as a Messiah. and Everything to do with his relationship with the Father. Then he's empowered for the For this calling, the Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove. So before Jesus does anything in ministry, his identity as a son is confirmed. And he's equipped by the Holy Spirit to be obedient, to fulfill his calling. Then immediately that calling is tested. He's led by the Spirit into the wilderness. The the devil tempts Jesus in multiple ways, all surrounding his calling and identity. And what we mentioned was... God tests to see what's in us, and the enemy tempts to lead us into sin. A lot of times we can't tell the difference, what's a test and what's a temptation. Our response is the same. Our responsibility is to be faithful to God, to trust Him in the midst of those circumstances. And then once Jesus gets on the backside of of that temptation, of that testing, then He begins to live out His calling, and that's what we're going to focus on today. So uh, verse 14 is where we'll start. And Jesus returned from the wilderness in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about Jesus went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Jesus unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And Jesus began to say to them, Today this this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, and all spoke well of him, and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. We'll pause there, so Jesus goes back to his, in our, Vernacular. He goes back to his home church. He's already established a bit of a ministry a profile. He's done some public ministry. His name is known. There's a little bit of buzz about him. We'll look at that in a second. He comes home to his home church, common for the synagogue leader to invite visiting people to participate in the service, visiting spiritual leaders. So Jesus, again, has a little bit of juice spiritually. And so they, you come, they give him the scroll, and it's Isaiah. And he looks for this particular passage. It's Isaiah 61. We found, uh, not me, some archaeologists have found a scroll. The complete book of Isaiah on a scroll It's 24 feet long. So you can imagine Jesus is up there. He's unrolling this thing and he's trying to find verse 61. It's a deliberate uh, quote for him. It's not just some random passage that he's reading. He's making a point. There you see Isaiah 61 on the screen. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, opening of the prison to those who are bound. Now listen to this part. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus leaves that part out. He doesn't say that. He quotes most of Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, but he leaves off that last little part about vengeance. This is a messianic uh, prophecy. So if you were to ask a Jew, tell me the job description of the Messiah. What's he going to do? They would point to this passage. There are others, but this is one of the ones that they would point to and say, that's what he's going to do. It's going to be, he's going to usher in a time of favor for the Jews and vengeance for the Gentiles. He's going to restore the Jews. There's going to be good news to the Jews. He's going to set the Jews free from this oppressive, pagan, government that they're living under and he's going to judge the gentiles because of the way they've treated us that's what he's going to and jesus doesn't quote that part his second coming deals much more with his judgment than his first but he doesn't quote that part and it becomes important uh, later so he stands up to read the scripture because that's what you do and then he sits down to interpret it because that's what you do and what he says is everything that i just read that's me that's what i've come to do all of that is being fulfilled through me and initially people are very positive with his with their response they they marvel at these gracious words that he tells and again he's got some there's a bit of a ministry buzz about Jesus because of some things he's done in another area another region and so i think they're thinking hey he, he's done some of this stuff and he's going to come and do this now. we we'll are skip down to verse 31. So Luke flip-flops the chronology. What we're about to read in verse 31 actually happens before the sermon. You can see this in the Gospel of Mark. Chapter 1 deals with all of this activity that we're about to look at. And the sermon that we just read actually doesn't occur until Mark 6. So what Luke has done is he's flip-flopped the order of events because he wants us to know this is what Jesus thinks about himself. We've seen his job description from the angel Gabriel. We've seen his job description from Simeon, this old prophet. We've seen his job description from John the Baptist who prepares the way. And what Jesus says is, i am tell you what I think my job description is. And then he goes about fulfilling that. So verse 31 chronologically occurs before the sermon we just read. Jesus goes down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. He was teaching on the Sabbath. The people were astonished at his teaching. Why? Because his word possessed authority. In the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. He cried out in a loud voice, Ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown this man down in their midst, he then came out of the man, having done this man no harm. All the people were amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power, Jesus commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about Jesus went out into every place in the surrounding region. And Jesus arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. That's Peter. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. He stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to Jesus. Jesus laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. The demons also came out of many, crying, You're the Son of God. But Jesus rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. And when it was day, so this is the next day, Jesus departed and went into a desolate place. The people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But Jesus said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So there we see Jesus actually fulfilling, living out his job description. Two major parts and both of those parts you can see uh, liter- physically and spiritually. So Jesus came to preach the good news, and we see him doing that. He just said that. I've got to go to all these towns and preach the good news. And Jesus also came to set people free. both from, And we'll see as we read through his ministry, he let, sets people free from sin, from sickness, from demonic oppression. We see him opening the eyes of people who physically can't see and spiritually can't see. There's a physical and a spiritual component to Jesus' ministry. And we see him doing that. So there's a guy with a demon, and Jesus sets him free. So this, this guy had been oppressed by this demonic force, and Jesus sets him free. And then he goes to Peter's house, and Peter's mother-in-law is sick. And this is the only place in Luke where Jesus addresses the sickness and not the person who's sick. It says The Bible says he rebukes the sickness. That word rebuke is what he does to demons. And so I think what you see there is Jesus saying, I'm also setting people free from sickness. People can be oppressed by illness, and I set them free from that as well. So this section, we see Jesus doing the things that he said I came to do. It's, It's proof, it's example, it's illustration and demonstration. Verse 22, we're going to jump back up. The second part, this is the pivot point in this sermon in Nazareth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? Seems like a pretty innocent question. Is not this Joseph's son? The expected answer is yes, it is Joseph's son. Here's Mark's picture or Mark's version of this sermon. And you can get a fuller sense of the mood in the place. So Jesus says, hey, I'm the guy. I'm going to live out this job description. And they seem to respond positively but then they, somebody or some group says something like this. Where did this man get these things? What's this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter? The son of Mary, brother of James, Joseph, and Judas, and Simon. And are not his sisters here with us. And they took offense at him. We don't read all that in just this. Is not this Joseph's son. But that's what's going on. There's this undercurrent of accusation and hostility and criticism and doubt. Uh, Last week when we looked at the genealogy of Jesus, Luke says Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, and then my Bible in parentheses says, as was supposed of Joseph. Your Bible might say, so it was thought, or something like that. That word supposed, Luke uses eight times, and seven of the times he means somebody's making a wrong assumption. Mary and Joseph supposed that Jesus was with them when they were traveling back from Jerusalem and Jesus was 12 years old. And they were wrong. They supposed that he was with them and so that led to an incorrect action. They left and left Jesus behind in Jerusalem. And again, almost every time that word is used in Luke, that's what he means. Somebody makes an incorrect assumption and that incorrect assumption leads to um, wrong action. And that's what you see here. Isn't this Joseph's son? They're supposing... He's the son of Joseph. That's an incorrect assumption, which then leads to wrong action, which is what we'll see in a minute, what that wrong action becomes. Verse 23, Jesus said to them, so he picks up on the mood of the room and he changes his tone. Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you did at Capernaum, that's all the stuff that we just read, Do here in your hometown as well. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. In truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian." When they heard these things, all the synagogue, all in the synagogue, were filled with wrath. 180 degrees. They rose up, drove him out of the town, brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. They're trying to kill him. But passing through their midst, Jesus went away. That's one little question. Isn't this the son of Joseph? Changes everything. His answer. What he says. What you're going to ask me to do is prove it. Physician, heal yourself. Well, if you're a doctor, then why are you sick? That's what they're saying. So if you're the Messiah, if that's your job description, then show us. We want to see it. You did it in Capernaum. Do it here. And Jesus' response is no. I'm not going to. In Capernaum, they welcomed me. They accepted me. They trusted me. There were people who waited they were just waiting on the clock to get to 6 o'clock. They can't walk but two-thirds of a mile on the Sabbath day. They can't carry anything from inside their house to outside their house. So they've got these sick people in their home, and they can't get them to me. Because it would be breaking the Sabbath rules. So they're just waiting on the sun to start going down. And as soon as it goes down, the Sabbath is over, and they're coming. And they're bringing people to me. Because they believe I can heal them. That is not what y'all are doing. At all. You're accusing you're criticizing, you're hostile. There was none of that in Capernaum. The people in Capernaum begged me to stay. They wanted me in their midst. That's why all of this grace was poured out on them. And that's why it's not going to be poured out on you. In Mark 6, we read, Jesus is, it says he's amazed at their unbelief. And so he just goes on to the next town. He, he can't do much there. Not because there's anything different about him. He still is who he's always been. The difference is the responsiveness of the people. In Nazareth, there's no, there's no space. This is Joseph's son. He's a carpenter. What does he mean he's the... Of course he's not the Messiah. He's the carpenter. There's no space in their hearts and their minds for Jesus to be anything other than what they've always known him to be. It's not the case in Capernaum. And so they respond. And then Jesus... Tells two very provocative Old Testament stories. One from the time of Elijah, one from the time of Elisha. The background context for both of those is faithless Israel. The Israelites were in a long stretch of very blatant rebellion towards the Lord. Lots of idolatry, lots of wickedness. God sends a famine and a drought to get their attention. It's judgment. And then he sends Elijah to a Gentile woman. There were people starving in Israel, and he doesn't send her doesn't send Elijah to any of them, to a Gentile woman, and he miraculously extends her supply of food that actually raises her son from the dead. With Elisha, plenty of people in, plenty of Jews have leprosy, but Naaman, who's a Syrian, a Gentile army captain, is the one who's healed. Jesus' point there is, just because you're Jews doesn't mean anything. You hear me say, now is a time of God's Favor. Today is a day of God's favor, and you think just because you're Jews it's coming your way. Well, here's two examples where Jews didn't get it and Gentiles did, and they hear the implication. You're saying that's what's happening here. We're gonna miss it. The Messiah is supposed to be for us. He's supposed to make these things happen for us, and you're saying you're him, and these things are gonna happen for others, not just us. It's not enough that we're Jews or some other qualification. For us to receive this grace of God. It's faith. It has nothing to do with ethnicity. And we'll see that as we read through Luke. And they're ticked. As they try to kill him. And I have no idea how he got away. I don't know if it was some kind of David Copperfield thing. or what. I don't know how he got away. But he gets away. Luke doesn't tell us that. So what does this mean for us? Several, lots of things we could look at. What I was thinking about was this idea of a job description. And wondering, do you know what yours is? Do you know from the Lord what your job description is? In our vernacular here at Stonebridge would say, do you know what your deal is? Do you know what the good works that God has created in advance for you to do? Do you know what those things are? And for some of you, when we start talking about this, you shut down because you don't know. It just creates frustration. I want to encourage you to try to press through that and try to gain some clarity. We, it's important. We see here with Jesus just clarity uh, it can create momentum in some ways, and it can protect us from th- some things for Jesus and for us. Just the clarity of knowing, hey, here's my, here's my job description. Here's what God has called me to do, and then lets you know what you should be doing. That's simple. We also see it protects Jesus on both sides. Criticism comes his way, and because he's clear on his job description, it doesn't shut him down. It doesn't derail him. It doesn't stall him. He knows, hey. This is my job description. This is what I'm going to do. And even though y'all know me, and you have known me for 30 years, you're my home church, you should be my biggest fans, my strongest supporters. You're not, but that's not going to pull me off course, because I know. And that's why clarity is so important. At some point, as you begin to step into your calling, you will meet resistance, and it very well may be from people who are very close to you. Even within your own home and I 'm not saying be a jerk and run them over i 'm saying there's something to clarity that says criticism is not going to shut me down it's not going to throw it 's not going to derail me I know what God has said there's a different I mean, we got to have some wisdom there with am I being stubborn and all those types of things but in general clarity can protect you from that type of criticism. On the other end, as you step into your calling, because that's what God has wired you and gifted you to do, you're going to be successful. You're going to see fruit. They say to Jesus, Please stay. He's seen massive success one day. Look at all the stuff that he's done. Just one day. Please stay another day. And he says, I gotta keep going. I don't allow criticism to derail me, and I also don't allow success to do that either. I know what my calling is. I know what my job description is. I've got to keep moving. There's lots of cities that need to hear this message. Clarity will do that for you. It will, it, it's tracks that allow you to run. And you won't get derailed or pulled aside when you're criticized, and you won't get derailed or pulled aside when you're doing really well. And people tell you to, maybe they're, they're shifting things around a little bit on you, asking you to do something, stay, just stay, keep doing this. What Richard was saying, hey, you're doing great, why don't you just keep, no, I've got to give this thing away, that type of deal. So a couple of ways for you to think about clarity, last week we looked at this little quadrant deal, and I said I want you to live in that top right corner, I called it quadrant two where you're confident and secure in who you are in Jesus, and where you're confident and engaged in what his calling on your life is. That's where Jesus lived, and that's where we want to live. And one of the prerequisites for being there, one of the requirements for living in that quadrant, is having some sense of clarity. You can't be confident in what God has called you to do, and you can't be engaged in what he's calling you to do if you don't know what he's called you to do. At that point, all you're doing is getting lucky every now and again. So we want to have a sense of calling so that we can live in that top right corner. Again, that's where Jesus lived, and that's where we want to live. A couple of ways for you to think about this. Can we see the next one, Mark? A few weeks ago, I, we ran through some stuff really quick, and I'm going to run through it even quicker today. When we talk about your calling, one of the questions that I'm saying, is, it's where you fit in the world. God's at work in our community, and all of us have a part to play in what he's doing. Wherever it is that he's placed you, Marietta, Kennesaw, Smyrna, West Cobb, East Cobb, wherever he's placed you, you have a role to play in that place. He's at work, and he said, I've got you here in order to help me accomplish this. That's your calling, or we call that your deal, or the good works God's created for you to do. And there's some things that you can do. You can look up. That's how you can discover. God, what have you said to me directly? You can look back, where have I seen fruit in my life? You can look in, how has God wired me particularly? You can look out, where are the places that I'm drawn to serve? And we've got more questions off of each of those, and you can get those slides if you need them. But that piece, is it's externally focused. God, where Where do I fit in terms of what you're doing in the world? I want to give you a different lens today, and for some of you, this will be a new concept. And so just... Bear with me. This is Ephesians 4, starting in verse 7. Grace was given to each one of us, so that's important, each one of us, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when Jesus ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. We're going to skip down to verse 11. There's a parenthetical comment in 9 and 10. And Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. For building up the body of Christ. It's another way of looking at your calling or your deal. One way is to say, how do I fit in terms of what God is doing in the world? This way is to say, how do I fit in terms of what God is doing in the church? They're two sides of the same coin. It's two ways of looking at the same thing. These things are complementary. So what is God doing in the church? He's trying to build the church up. He's trying to mature the church. to say, build us up in love. And unity, And all of us have a part to play. Those five gifts, apostle, prophet, evangelist, we'll say shepherd, because pastor sounds like a job, shepherd and teacher, all five of those things are necessary for the church to be matured. And if you're a Christian, then you're, you are one or two of those things. You're bent in one or two of those directions. You have a role to play in what God is doing in maturing the church. And again, that's complementary to what we would say your deal is. There you see that little picture there. I've taken most of this stuff from this book. It's called Primal Fire. I told the guys at nine it's not nearly as radical as the title. But it's um, written by a guy named Neil Cole. I agree with some, not all. But it's good if you want more information on this because we're going to move through it pretty fast. And again, for some of you, this is a new concept. But I want you, it, it may help you Begin to discover how God has wired you. Let's see that first one, Mark, Apostle. Now, for some people, when they hear that word, they get scared. I'm not saying that you're Peter or John. I'm not saying you're Paul. I'm not saying that you get to write a book and it goes in the New Testament. Apostles are people who are sent really to lay a foundation. They're starters. They're pioneers. They're entrepreneurs. And as I'm saying this, I want you thinking about yourself. Is that me? And you can be thinking about yourself within the context of the church and within the context of whatever it is you do outside of the church. For some of you, honestly, your, your church engagement may be limited, and so you would say, well, I don't do any of that within the church. But if you look outside of that, you'd say, oh, that's totally who I am. You are who you are, whether it's inside or outside of the church. So keep both of those things in mind. The effect on others, so if someone is under the influence Of a mature apostle, what they leave saying is, I can do this. Apostles empower other people to live out their calling. They help people figure out, this is who you are, this is what God has for you, and go do it. You can see some of those key characteristics. They tend to start from scratch. If you say, if when people say, I don't want to reinvent the wheel, you say, I do, then you most, that's an apostolic bent. You don't want to build on what someone else has done. You don't want to retread. You want to start from scratch regularly. Focus on a few. You're fine with just a small group of folks as long as they're the right folks. Immaturity, so all of these things, there's a immature to mature spectrum, and you're somewhere on it. One that bottom one I think is very telling. Not good at managing things once they're started. If that's you, once something gets up off the ground, it's not necessarily that you just get bored. That may be a different issue. But since you honestly aren't that great at at keeping things going, you're much better at getting things started. If that sounds like you, then you may be bent this way. And we need people like this. We need people who help start and lay a foundation. Let's see the next one, please. Mark Prophet speaks to the church on God's behalf, edification, encouragement, And comfort, if you're around someone who's a mature prophet, what you leave is saying, I can hear God too. They don't just hear God for you, say, I can do this. And they help other people hear God. Prophets are truth tellers. Oftentimes they're passionate. They see things in black and white. They value justice. Oftentimes they're introverted, though not all the time. Ultimately, they're not afraid to tell the truth, even if they think they're going to hurt someone's feelings. For them, It's not about being mean. They so value the truth. That they're willing, to, they're they're willing to say it, even if they think it's going to tick somebody off. Immature prophets, lone wolves, they're people, they can jump from church to church or from group to group to group because nobody nobody measures up. They can see the gap between what is and what should be, and that gap can cause all kinds of internal problems for them. As so they keep jumping. Well, let me find the better group. Let me find a better group. Impatient. If that's you, if you tend to be someone who, when other people you don't necessarily see progress as much in people. When you don't feel like people are growing at the rate that you want, you maybe dismiss them. You may have a prophetic bent. Overly critical, if that's something that you fall into. Again, it's not because you're mean. It's because you can see in black and white what's good and what's bad, what's true and what's not. And so that can cause you, particularly in the immature times, to come across as overly critical and if you tend to ride the roller coaster, you're up and down, you may have a prophetic bent. Now I'm not now being a prophet doesn't mean you could predict the future. There's nothing up there about predicting the future. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about people who are spiritually sensitive to what God is saying and can convey that to other people. The next one, evangelists seek out opportunities to share the gospel with others and lead others toward Jesus. When you're around someone who's a mature evangelist, you set your you're more aware of the lost. You say, man, we should be doing something. I should be doing something. I should be reaching out on some way. These are the people everybody wants to be around. They're winsome. They're loving. They're extroverted. They make other people feel loved. If you're the kind of person, when people are around you, they say to you, you make me feel like you're, we're best friends. And you're going, we're not best friends. You may, this may be you. Like, that's a gift. If you need a counter example, I'm none of those things. I'm anti evangelist on all levels. You're a recruiter. Negative or the immature side. Oversell. Is that you? Every restaurant is not the best restaurant. But if that's you, the last place you tried, we all have to try, then you could be an evangelist. Overselling. You can create a, pro, a cult of personality that's usually not intentional. Evangelists have huge personalities, they tend to, they're, they're the life of the party. And so it can, can kind of create this, they're the sun and everything is revolving around them. Not intentionally. It just kind of happens because their personalities are so strong. Overly pragmatic. If, you just are, if you're more of like a results person, the ends justify the means. We just got to get this done. You don't really care how. Whether that's spiritually or not, then you could be. That's an immature characteristic of an evangelist. Next. Shepherd, we'll use that word, better than pastor. Most likely your small group leader is one of these. There's ton, we need tons, and there are tons. Overwhelming concern for continuing care. When you're around a shepherd, it helps you love people more. Protect and care for people. They notice the needs other people have. Highly relational value intimacy. If an evangelist says more is better, a shepherd says, just give me a handful, and I'm going to go deep with them are you a team builder you see what's how people's strengths fit together lead by example immaturity peacekeeping versus peacemaking that is not necessarily willing to confront because they don't want to ruffle any feathers is that you can be super busy because you're so relational and people take time tasks tend to pile up for you because people are more important and so you don't necessarily get stuff done Sometimes shepherds can be naive. You see the best in everyone, which sometimes that's great, and sometimes it's not great because they're conning you. Next, teacher. I think we have an intuitive sense of what that is. Those of you who have children in our children's ministry, this is Penny. Spurs progressive growth of understanding and application. When you're around a teacher, it makes you hunger for the word. That's in the spiritual sense, obviously. Curious, love to read. Always looking for new material. You want people not just to know stuff, but to apply it to their life. Immature is that separation between information and transformation. Immature teachers are fine just to download content to people and feel like that's enough. It can create dependence on a leader. You see that in kind of the broader Christian church. We have a handful of people who we hold up and say, let me just wait until their next Bible study comes out. They'll they'll figure out the book for me. Versus me being willing to dig in and try to figure it out for myself. So I say all of those things to say if you're in the room and you're following Jesus, then you're those, he's in you, and he's all five of those things. So there's a sense in which you're all five. But reality is most of us lean one or two of those things are primary in our life. And in this passage in Ephesians, it says, Paul says, Jesus gives those roles to us. So that's you being a gift to us. It's different from every other spiritual gift passage in the Bible. And this, the people, are the gift. So you, if you're an apostle, when you function in that way, are a gift to me. And when you're a pastor, you're a gift to me. When you're a teacher, you're a gift to me. You're a gift to the people who you're sitting around. God has given the people you're sitting around you, Why? In order to mature them. So there's this thing in which we all have a part to play. All five of those gifts are necessary for the maturing of the body of Christ. If you read the rest of Ephesians 4 and you read what comes out of a mature body of Christ, it's going to make you say, we need that. That is 100% what we need, and all five of those roles are necessary, and you lean in the direction of one or two of those things. And if I'm going to take some time, and we're going to pray. And if one of those things hits you, for some of you, you've never heard of any of this. Like, it might as well be Chinese, and that's fine. You can let it go. It was only 10 minutes. You're not going to get it back, but it was only 10 minutes. But for some of you, the Lord will use that grid to help you understand your calling. When you begin to recognize, oh, I'm a pastor, I'm a shepherd, that's what I do then it will help you see not just how God wants to use you within the church with a capital C, but how he wants to use you in the community because you're the same person inside and out. The context may be different, but the calling will be the same. You will still approach the community with the heart of a shepherd. And that may help you begin to recognize what does it look like for me to engage with people. If you have an apostolic bent, then that's going to be the same whether you're within the church or outside the church. I'm looking at Liz Walker. That's how she's bent. And so she tends to start things. She starts Park Street Soccer. That's what she does. She also leads mission trips outside and inside the church. There's a common thread for both of those things for her because she is who she is. And so the same thing will be true for you all. So I want us to take a few minutes and pray. So just close your eyes. We have a couple of minutes. Now I'm going to pray, and if nothing hits you, you don't need to feel it. Does that mean you're not called? Absolutely not. Does that mean you don't have a role to play? Absolutely not. It just means, for whatever reason, God's not speaking to you in this way this morning. So, Lord, I thank you for every man and woman in this room. I thank you for people. It's their first time, and they may never come back. But, it, but you have wired them in one of these five ways, in whatever church they choose to plant in. You want to use them in that way to bless that congregation. So, Lord, I pray now as we're quiet before you that you begin to confirm in the hearts of the men and women in, in this room the way that you've, the role that you have for them, the way that you've wired them. God, I pray for the apostles, and that right now you would confirm in their hearts who you are. You may sense kind of a feeling. You may hear something kind of in your mind. You may have a peace. It's the Lord confirming. God, I pray for our prophets and that you would confirm in them that calling. For you, it may just make logical sense. As we walk through that, you're like, that is me. Evangelist, God, I pray that you would confirm that's who they are. There are online tests out there. I don't want you to take any of them. Context of your community and your life, I want you to have a sense from the Lord of how He's made you. God, I pray for our shepherds. And there are lots of them because we need lots of them. that you confirm in their hearts? That's who I made you to be. It's your contribution to the body. God, I pray for our teachers you would speak to them as well and they would have a sense that says yes God I pray particularly for people who see themselves as qualified to teach outside but not within the church God I pray that you would speak to them about that God we want all five of these gifts to be an operation in our church because we need them see people matured, and not just within Stonebridge, but in the broader body of Christ here in downtown Marietta. God, I pray that you would use this lens to continue to clarify the job description of every man and woman in this room because everybody has one. There's good works that you've created for each of us to do, and we want to step fully into those. We want to step into those things as sons and daughters who know we're loved and pleasing to you to step into those as men and women who are filled continually with your spirit to empower us to be obedient and faithful. But God, we want to step in with confidence because we clearly know what you've called us to. In Jesus' name, Amen. I'm going to close with ministry. Particularly, I want to pray for people who would say, I'm a prophet in my hometown. I don't mean that you're a prophet. That's a proverb. Where God has planted you you would say that's your hometown. Whatever way you want to define that and you're struggling because you don't have any there's no honor for you there. It's difficult for you to do ministry, to love people in that place because they don't they know you as something else. Many of you raised your hands last week and said I want to be a pastor in my work. And one of the problems with that can be you're not a pastor at work, you're our accountant. You're not a pastor at work, you're my boss. You're not a pastor at work, you you know, staple papers or whatever it is that you do, and they're pigeonholing you. And so the idea of stepping out of that and saying, hey, this is what, here's my, this job description, they're going to go, no, that's not, no. And there's going to be resistance. If that just resonates with you, if that resonates with you at all, we would love to pray with you. If this five-fold APES thing, if that stirs your heart, I'd love to pray with you about that as well. So you guys can stand.